Welcome to Hydrant Online. My name is Tim, and I'm the pastor here at Hydrant Church, and I want to welcome you to this brand new series of messages called Thrive, as we look at the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel is one of those interesting characters. If you grew up in church and you went to Sunday school, you would have certainly heard the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And you probably heard the story of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego as they were thrown into a fiery furnace. But if that's all we know about the book of Daniel, then chances are we see it as a, as a, a bunch of stories for children, or we see it as an adventure story or a story that's meant to, to tell us that God will rescue us in our time of need if we remain faithful and obedient to him. But we kind of miss out with this perspective on what the book of Daniel is really about. You see, the book of Daniel is kind of the memoirs of a man named Daniel. Daniel was his Hebrew name as he was known in Babylon. It was Belteshazzar. Now Daniel, in, likely in his old age, remembered the stories of his years in Jerusalem and then being carried into exile and, and working and serving under the kings of Babylon, particularly Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. Now you might think, what does this have to do with us? Why is the book of Daniel important for us to read today? Why should we be talking about the book of Daniel? And I think that the reason is very simple. Daniel saw his life fall apart. Everything that he had worked toward and everything that he knew was ripped away and he was thrust into this brand new country, a country that was so different from his home. It was a, it was a country in a land where a king ruled and this king was evil. He set himself up as a god. In fact, throughout scripture, Babylon is used as an image, a metaphor for the epitome of evil, the personification of evil empire. And, and this is where Daniel finds himself. And he is trying to figure out how to live faithful to God in this upside down world that calls evil good, that pursues its own desires, that feels like it is designed to rip away his identity as a child of God. And when we look into the, the stories of Daniel, we look into the book and into this memoirs, this journal that Daniel leaves for us, what we find, what we find is, is a man who was able to thrive in the evil empire. He was able to thrive as a child of God. He was able to hold on to his identity, his faith, and he, and he still was able to be and do what he needed to be and do in this crazy place. Now, there are a lot of Christians today who can feel a little bit like Daniel sometimes. It feels like our world has shifted. Our countries have changed. In the United States, it feels like things have changed. Like we, we barely recognize the way the world is today. We feel like we were once 
on top. We once had a say, and now our voices have been ripped away. Many feel like our culture is designed to subjugate Christianity, to rob us of our Christian identity as children of God. We look around and we feel like we are are pushed aside, marginalized. Some in our world today are persecuted. And we wonder, how can we thrive in this crazy, broken world that seems bent on destroying our Christian faith? And I think Daniel provides us some guidance. When we look at Daniel, we see a a hope and a humility and a wisdom that marks the way he lives. And we see a perspective and an understanding and a faithfulness that allowed him to thrive even when all the star, all the cards were stacked against him. So let's go to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, and, and I'm just going to take a couple of minutes and I'm going to read this chapter. It's important for us to immerse ourselves in the Bible at times, to really allow the story to be told in its full. So we're going to read Daniel chapter 1. I encourage you to grab your phone or your tablet or your, your Bible and to read along with me as I read. If not, then, then maybe just kind of sit back and close your eyes and listen. Imagine yourself in Daniel's shoes. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from his own table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Now, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. And he told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. (laughs) Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our, our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of time, set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So we have this story unfolding in the book of Daniel. Daniel is a part of the ruling class. He's a part of the nobility in Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come and they besiege Jerusalem and they conquer the city and they take out the powerful and those with understanding and learning and march them across the desert to Babylon. And there they force them into service. They force them into education. They force them to work for this evil king, Nebuchadnezzar. It's kind of a moment that puts perspective to some of our own suffering. Daniel, likely a young man looking forward to a great life, a life that had been one of ease up to this point, one of privilege. And suddenly all of that is stripped away. He's marched off into a foreign land. They change his name. You see, his name his name, Daniel, had referred to his worship and honor and service to God, to Yahweh. But the new name they gave him stripped that identity away and turned him into a servant of Marduk, the king god of the Babylonians. So it's like his name was changed from Christian to Prince of Satan. <laughs> and when his name is changed, he's then put into a system of three years of education. And in that, he would have certainly studied economics and he would have understood politics, but he also would have studied the history and the religion of the Babylonians. He would have learned of the occult and the, the things that they had practiced through the years and been prepared to serve an evil king. Everything that he was learning was to be one of the magicians, one of the wise men, one of the enchanters in Babylon. And then after three years is up, as he has successfully demonstrated this knowledge, he's placed, he's placed as a servant of the king. When they were promoted to serving the king, 
In all likelihood, Daniel and his friends were made into eunuchs. We know that the man responsible for training him was a eunuch. We know that these young men who were smart and attractive in every way were to serve the king and to be around the king and also his harem of wives. He would have never wanted temptation or distraction for his wives or these young men. So he would have had them made into eunuchs. So all in a matter of a couple of years, Daniel is stripped of his home, his land, his identity, his name, his manhood, and then forced to learn another culture and religion and to serve in the kingdom of the man who took all of those things away from him to serve an evil king. And yet he thrives. He remains faithful to God. He determines that in the midst of all of this, he's going to lean on his faith. And while on the outside, they may call him by a different name, he will continue to honor his God, continue to serve his God, continue to obey his God. Life's hardships for many of us won't compare to the things that Daniel faced, but they have no less ability to rock us to our core, to make us question who we are and to to question our faith. Life's hardships, big and small, they they test our faith. Daniel, Daniel seemed to believe it was these hardships, loss and pain that are used by God to accomplish his greater purpose in the world. Now, don't misunderstand or hear, say, hear me say something that I'm not saying. We don't see any evidence that Daniel believed that God made every little bad thing happen to him. We don't see this micromanaging God at work in the book of Daniel. What we see in Daniel is this hope and confidence that regardless of what happens, God will use all of that to accomplish his greater purpose. That he will use all of that to mature us and to help us to become everything we were created to be if we will trust him and walk with him through those seasons. It can be hard to hold on to our faith when trials come, but it's how our faith is grown and tested. If we look in the book of James, James chapter 1 We find a challenging little portion of Scripture. It's perhaps written by the brother of Jesus. Certainly seems to have been taken from the thoughts of the brother of Jesus. In James chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, we read this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You know, when life starts to fall apart, when when things go wrong, when, when it feels like everything is stacked against us, like God has abandoned us and let the world come crashing in, we find out 
what our faith is really made of. Our faith is tested not because God wants to see what's there, but because he wants us to be able to see what's there. He wants us to know and to be able to discover whether our faith is counterfeit or not. You know, when it comes to, to, to bills here in the United States, the, the money that circulates, less than 1% of it is estimated to be counterfeit because of all of the different measures that reveal whether or not it's counterfeited. And one of the biggest things is the type of paper used to print. It's very hard to acquire. It's designed so that you can't bleach it and print bigger bills on smaller bills paper. There's all kinds of security measures that help you to determine whether or not a bill is true or counterfeit, whether it's fake or counterfeit. And it's those trials and those struggles, both big and small, that reveal to us whether our faith is counterfeit. Now, there's some types of counterfeit faith, of phony faith, that's easy to identify. It's easy to identify phony faith when faith is a self-proclaimed Christian who then lives like hell all week long. It's that kind of faith that will crumble under the smallest of attacks, the smallest of struggles, will have us upset with God. We can get upset with God really easily when we have phony faith. Then there's those with a convenient or cultural faith. It can look real. Sometimes the, to people who are in church every week and are checking off the boxes of daily devotions and Instagram posts and they're doing the things that make them seem very Christian. But really, really it's just a, a, a thing that's convenient or cultural. See, this kind of faith ignores the parts of Jesus' teaching that we don't like or that don't fit our culture today. If we don't like the way that Jesus teaches on forgiveness, then we'll just ignore that part. Or the way he talks about loving our enemies, well, we'll just, we'll just not pay attention to that part. Or, or the way that he talks about forgiveness, we'll, we won't talk about that. Or, or submission to authority, don't, don't, we'll, we'll just kind of set those parts of Jesus' teaching aside. What happens that when life gets hard, this phony faith just bails. We walk away from God because life just got hard and we blamed Him for it. Because somehow along the way, we thought that the, the God of the universe who created everything and knows all things should shift His way of thinking to our way of thinking. We thought He should shift His standards to meet our standards and that certainly he could see clearly from our perspective and that everything we thought should happen in our lives, he would agree and make happen in our lives. But that kind of faith isn't faith in the real God. It isn't faith that, that is strong. It's not faith that is deeply rooted. It is faith that falls apart and just bails when it pushes, gets pushed too hard. There's other kinds of phony faith that get a little bit hard to see. A faith that doesn't amount to much more than good, good intentions. Faith that says, I believe in Jesus, but you know, really just spending time with Him, 
praying once in a while. It, I, I intend to, it just never actually happens. I intend to contribute to the, to the kingdom and to give to God some of the, the resources he's given me. But, you know, by the end of the month, and there's just nothing there. I intended to get up. I intended to go serve. I intended to meet my neighbor. I, I intended to help at the food page. I, in, I intended to speak those words of encouragement. It just, just didn't happen. I had good intentions. And it looks really good and it sounds really good. But good intentions don't lead to good fruit. And Jesus said that we can tell the truth the truth of what's happening inside because it's always revealed in the fruit of our lives. If love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness are not growing in our lives, regardless of our intentions, then we don't have a real faith. James, James also writes that Real faith will produce actions, not the other way around. Actions are not what give us faith, but they are the result of our faith. And so good intentions, a good intended faith is not real faith. Moral faith is not real faith. You see, we can have good morals for all kinds of reasons. Maybe our parents taught us good morals or we learned good morals in a philosophy class or, or we just have this desire to please people or to be perceived as good. And so we embrace and live within a moral code. But it hasn't really connected us to Jesus. It doesn't flow from Jesus. Morality is not a basis for faith or an evidence of faith. Not that we should have no morals, but biblical morality can be embraced for lots of different reasons. The fast start faith is another faith that sometimes is hard to distinguish in ourselves as counterfeit. You see, we grew fast. We got excited quickly and, and it seemed like God was doing so much, but then life hit and our faith sputtered out. It never grew roots. It was all shallow. It was all surface. And now as life has gotten hard, it just dried out and we give up on it. Because faith is meant to have roots deep down into our, into our minds, into our hearts, into our souls, into our emotions. And unless we let Jesus into all of those parts, we may grow fast, we may look good on the surface, but eventually, without roots, we discover our faith is counterfeit. Now listen, we don't describe these so that you can assess the faith of anyone else. It's not so you can assess your, your kid's faith or your or your spouse's faith, or a politician's faith, or that person at work's faith. It's only about assessing our own faith. Allowing, allowing the trials and the pain and the suffering and the things we go through to hold up a mirror and reveal what we really believe, what we really think, how we really live in a world that is broken and full of pain and loss that it feels like is doing everything within its power to strip away our identity, how can we thrive? Think quickly, there are 
five characteristics, five things that allow us to thrive in Babylon, that allow us to thrive in a world that calls evil good and good evil. The first is obedience. You see, Daniel, it's no, we can't be sure in this season when the Torah takes a back seat in Jerusalem what all about his faith he had learned. But one thing was for sure. There was a code to the way they ate, a kosher way of eating that was meant to honor God and respect the teachings of God. And, and we see Daniel's desire and his wisdom and his wit come to play in a commitment that he refuses to break this law of God. Obedience is important to Daniel. And it's how he thrives in Babylon. You see, John 14, 15, Jesus himself says that if you love me, you will obey me. This is not a manipulative obedience. This is not a controlling thing. It's a recognition of who God is and who Jesus is and that he has the best possible life for us. And out of our love for him, it is our desire to honor him, to walk with him, to be close to him, and to do the things that he tells us to do as the king of all creation. It's about trust and faith and action. Obedience. Now, obedience is easy when we agree. Can you remember your teenage years? Obedience is easy when you agree with what your parents are asking you to do. When you don't want to do what they're asking you to do is when obedience gets tested. When we go to the scriptures and we go to the teachings of Jesus and we see there are things that he asks us to do that seem crazy and counterintuitive and backwards to our world. He tells us, he tells us to forgive, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. He tells us to live, to live with a sexual ethic that is so different from our world. He calls us to, to take care of the widow and the orphan. He tells us that within the kingdom of God, there is nothing that should divide us. Not politics, not economics, not gender, not race. We're told to love our neighbor and he describes that love for our neighbor with a Samaritan or what was understood in that time as someone who believed differently, thought differently, acted differently, and spoke differently than they did. We're called to obey. And if we're going to thrive in Babylon, if we're going to thrive in our culture, in our world, where, where Christians have a reputation for being mean-spirited and hate, hateful, where we, are, where we care more about being right than loving, where we care more about being served than serving, we care more about power than we do about love. In the midst of a world where that is our reputation, the only way we're going to thrive, the only way we are going to demonstrate Christ is in obedience to him. As we obey him, even when we don't like it. The second is perspective. Perspective. There's something about obedience that helps us begin to get perspective. 
We see who God really is. See, some of us don't have a perspective that God is at work in our world. We have a perspective that God somehow created the world and stepped far back from it. Or that he's far away from us and can't hear us, not that he's right beside of us. Our perspective on God is shaping our faith. It determines our faith. And we need to go to the scriptures and we need to understand who our God is as a God who is sovereign, a God who is at work, a God who is for us, a God who is love, a God who is self-sacrificing, a God who loved us when we were his enemies, a God who has never abandoned us. Our God is at work. Romans tells us that he's weaving the good and bad together for our good. But listen, we, we as Christians today, especially in this country, we have an easy life. <laughs> Say, well, my life's not easy. And that's probably true, but let's compare it historically to humanity through the centuries. Our life is relatively easy. It's only been in the last couple of hundred years that we have automobiles and air conditioning and microwaves and a quick coffee maker. <laughs> it's only in the last couple of centuries that, that expected lifespans began to exceed 30, 40, 50 years. It's only in the last 100 or 200 years that, that the child, the, the, the infant mortality rates have, have gone down and down in many places into single digits. We look at Daniel and all that he went through. It begins to give us perspective. We look at history it gives us perspective. Jesus said this life is hard. James wrote, whenever you face trials. Not if you face trials or if life gets hard or if it gets really bad. When? When? It is a part of being alive. And it doesn't make it any easier in the moment. But when we have perspective, we can continue to trust God that he will weave and work, that he loves us and that he is for us. We are not abandoned or forsaken or ignored. He is with us. Obedience and perspective lead to endurance. We read it in James chapter 1. Go back there. But you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Endurance, perseverance. Daniel, Daniel had to be patient and persevere through three years of training and education. He had to persevere serving with an, an evil king. He had to persevere through co-workers who hated him and tried to have him killed. Now, I realize you may not like your coworkers. You may have had some people around you that are difficult to work with, but I doubt very many of them have tried to feed you to lions. Daniel's coworkers tried to have him fed to lions. <laughs> and he endured. He endured. His faith grew. So that as he is writing this book, he's, he's writing this kind of journal of his experience years later, he writes about that besieging of Jerusalem and says, the Lord, the Lord handed Jerusalem to the king of Babylon. He sees God's hand at work 
even in the most difficult times. His obedience, perspective, and endurance. And those lead to the final two, confidence and courage. When you've accomplished something hard, when you've done something hard, you find confidence that you didn't know you had. You find the courage to step up and do another hard thing. Faith works that way. It grows with each trial, with each temptation, with each struggle, with each moment of suffering until we are able to have faith through the most difficult times of life and hold on. Listen, we can go to the book of Daniel and if we take things out of context, then we can say that he'll rescue you if you're thrown into the furnace or, or if you have faith, you may be thrown in the lions, but God will shut the mouths of the lions around you. But I think we'll be misreading the whole of Scripture. Life is hard and sometimes we, we do the right things. We continue to walk with faith and it doesn't lead to rescue. I don't think Daniel had any expectation that he would walk out of that lion's den. I don't think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had any expectation that they would walk out of that fiery furnace. But they knew, they knew that regardless of what happened, they would walk in faith. And this faithfulness, this obedience and perspective and endurance and confidence and courage allowed them to thrive in Babylon. Over the course of this series, we're going to be looking more deeply at some of the stories that maybe we've heard a lot about Daniel and his friends. And we're going to try to look at them from a different perspective. But the idea is that when we look to him, that we'll see an example of hope and humility, and wisdom. We're in an election season. And even when we're not in an election season, our culture has become so divisive, so aggressive, and it's so contaminated the church. We feel entitled to be able to voice our every opinion. We feel entitled to be in power. We feel entitled to all sorts of things. We feel entitled mostly to an easy, blessed life. And you know what it's turned a lot of us into? Wimpy, whiny Christians. We have a ton of wimpy, whiny Christians who, who get complaining every time they're offended. They got to they gotta scream out every time they feel like their rights have been infringed upon, even in the littlest bit. They use anger to get what they want. They are loud and cruel and disrespectful. Not loving, not forgiving, not humble. Not wise. Instead, you need obedience. You see, the plight of the church of Christians today has a lot less to do with the world around us and the fact that we've allowed the world around us to infect within us. And we've become wimpy, whiny Christians whose faith is anemic and weak and at times counterfeit. We need to come back to God. We need to come back to trusting Him 
in the midst of everything. We need to come back to a place where we as the church act in love and hope. And that our desire more than anything is to trust God in a way that He develops in us love and joy and peace, regardless of who gets elected, regardless of how things change, regardless of what's happening in the world, peace. Patience. Patience with those we disagree with. Patience with those who think differently than we do. Patience with the co-workers. Patience with the drivers down the road. Kindness in all things. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. May we as the church of Jesus Christ be known for our gentleness even in our courage and self-control and self-control. May we control control our words, our thoughts, our actions, and may they all bring glory to God. Regardless of what's happening in the world around us, may we thrive. Let's pray. Father, you have been faithful to us. We love you. Sometimes we don't love you well. Sometimes we let fear get a hold of us. Sometimes we we let our worry get in. Sometimes we get scared. (laughs) Sometimes we try to control things. God, we love you. We love you not because you make life easy, not because you make things go our way. We love you because you are God and you created us. You have first loved us. You have forgiven us and given us life that's worth living. We love you. May that love shape us. Help us love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.